Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah. And we're in the 22nd chapter concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Before we read the first verse, let me say that the people of Judah were behaving like their pagan neighbors. And so it was only right that Isaiah should include them in the list of nations that God would judge. You know, Amos did the same thing. Amos denounced six heathen nations round about uh, Israel and Judah. And then he says, And for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And then he turned to Judah and says, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. So Isaiah has already talked about heathen nations, various ones. If you have another one yet coming, is Phoenicia, uh, addressed... uh, by the burden of Tyre in the next chapter. But God has a way of judging not only those round about us and those that we think are so ungodly, but also us. And the Bible teaches that God is uh, no respecter of persons. And when we sin, we're just, we have to pay the price just like the other fellows. And just like Jim and uh, Sheila saying that there's no cheap price to sinning. David found that out. The high cost of sinning. I have a message on that. But anyway, God was uh, going to judge uh, Judah and Jerusalem the same way. And in His mercy, the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from the Assyrian army, but He would not deliver them from Babylon. So when there's one judgment comes because of sin, and then God delivers, and then the people think they can get by with uh, further sin, God says there's another one coming that may be even worse than the first. And Isaiah pointed out two particular sins in this chapter, in the 22nd chapter, that would cause Judah to decline and ultimately to go into captivity into Babylon. And these two sins, well, I'll give you a division of this chapter. Verses 1 through 14 was the unbelief of the people. And then verses... Uh, 15 through 25, the unfaithfulness of the leaders. I wonder if they both were not connected. The unbelief of the people and the unfaithfulness of the leaders. You might have even reversed those things. The unfaithfulness of the leaders and the, and the uh, unbelief of the people. And that's the way it works a lot of times because when you have unfaithful leaders, you have also unbelieving people. We'll, we'll discuss that as we go along. And we'll... Uh, try to bring out these two points, especially during this uh, lesson in the 22nd. If we don't get to the 23rd, we'll save that for another time. But we'll take it verse by verse, and then I'll give you some overall things, a picture of the whole situation when we talk about the unbelief of the people. But let's take it verse by verse, and then we'll come back and talk about some more things in general. First, it says in chapter 22, verse 1, The burden of the valley of vision. This is what God saw concerning uh, Judah, Jerusalem and Judah. He says, What aileth thee now that thou art wholly gone up to the housetops? Thou that art full of stirs, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Thy slain men are not slain with thy sword, nor are dead in the battle. So he saw this, uh, that Jerusalem was a joyous city. 
And he was saying that the slain people were not slain in battle. The people, he saw the people dying not from, from battle, wounds, wounds they had received in battle, but from famine and disease, from other ways. You know, God has many ways of judging. Sometimes he used other nations and there was war and there was battles and the people suffered in that way. But at other times, God himself was the one that was the warrior and he would bring judgment in the form of famine and disease and, and other things to cause his people to wake up. You know, isn't God long-suffering and good and kind to permit us to go on as we are and then it seems like that we just uh, go the wrong direction and he has to finally do something about it to get our attention. All the things that the Lord does in our nation today should begin to get our attention as a people. That we've enjoyed the blessings of God and yet this nation is not a Christian nation. It's a wicked nation and a sinful nation. And when we have all the things that are going on and all the justification for sin and and again I refer to what Jim and, and Sheila are saying, that there's a high price tag to that. And one of these days, we're going to have to pay the price if we don't change, if we don't turn to God in repentance and faith. And I'm not saying uh, just on an individual basis because we know that many, there are many godly, uh, God-fearing, uh, Bible-believing and following God's Word and trying to live a Christian life, but there are many that disregard it and turn the other direction. So, <clears throat> notice verse 3, it says, all thy rulers are fled together. They are bound by the archers. All that are found in thee are bound together which have fled from far. The rulers were fleeing in fear as the enemy army approached, never thinking about the fact that they were bringing this upon themselves. Sometimes you and I fear certain things, and we say, well, you know, I'm afraid of this or that or the other. Do we ever stop to think that we may be reaping some of what we have sown? that we may be bringing some of the problems that we have upon ourselves. Actually, sometimes we're all our own worst enemy. And Israel was too. They were causing, they were the cause of their problems. In fact, God was using Assyria and Babylon to bring judgment upon them because of their, because of their lack of faith and repentance and turning to Him. In verse 4 it says, Therefore said I, look away from me, I will weep bitterly. Labor not to comfort me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. You know, Isaiah was much like Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. I believe that's Isaiah, I mean, Jeremiah 9 verse 1. But, you know, he had compassion. So did Isaiah. Most of God's prophets and preachers and ministers and servants have compassion on people that even are rebellious. Remember what God said to Moses? He says, Thy people have uh, corrupted themselves. He says, Get down and I'm going to bring judgment upon them. And he says, Moses, I'll save you and take you on over and give you a good life and, and prosper and bless you. But he says, This people need to be destroyed. And old Moses stood in the gap and he says, Lord, this is thy people. Uh, you know, God says, Moses, they're your people. And Moses says, no, God. He says, they're your people that you brought out of Egypt. And he turned the tide. I mean, that is such intercession, isn't it? 
That's great intercession when Moses could plead with God and say, listen, you brought them out of Egypt, now I want you to spare them and be merciful to them. He had compassion, didn't he? On, on the people. So did Jeremiah. So did Isaiah. The Apostle Paul said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He says, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. I believe that's Romans 10, verses 1 through 3. In Romans 9, 1, he says, He says, I have continual sorrow, great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart for my brethren uh, according to the flesh. And so we have you and I. It wouldn't hurt us if we came into the same situation to where when we see God's people in the local church or in, in the community or in the nation doing wrong, that we should have compassion and care about them and yet warn them of their ways. And that's exactly the twofold uh steps that Isaiah was taking. Notice what he said in verse 4. Therefore said I, look away from me, I will weep bitterly. Labor not to comfort me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. Then he says in verse uh, 5. For it is a day of trouble and and of treading down and of perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision. Breaking down the walls and of of crying to the mountains. And Elam bare the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. These were two eastern provinces of Assyria. And it shall come to pass that thy choicest valley shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. In other words, the invasion was coming. Isaiah was warning. And he discovered the discovery... He discovered the the covering, rather, of Judah. And thou didst look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. You remember Solomon made the houses of the forest and there was great armor that was provided for the people in those days. And Judah's divine protection here was being removed. He discovered the covering of Judah and thou didst look... In that day to the armor of the house of the forest. And she was defenseless. Verse 9 shows that. Ye have seen also the breaches of the city of David. The city of David, Jerusalem or Zion, the, the south side of the city. That they are many. And ye, and ye gather together the waters of the lower pool. And ye have numbered the houses of Jerusalem. And the house have, houses have ye broken down to fortify the wall. Notice these things. The waters, they gathered together the waters of the lower pool. They were using other parts of their city. The houses you have broken down to fortify the wall. You have made also, you made also a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool. They were building a reservoir between the walls. But, look at verse 11. But ye have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither have had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. They were doing a lot of things. They were collecting armor. They were fortifying the walls. They were uh, servicing the water supply. And they were building a reservoir. But all of this frantic preparation would not deliver them from the enemy. 
They could just do all they wanted to. You know, you can take every step, but there's one statement in verse 11 that shows where they stand. But ye have not looked into the Maker thereof. The people did everything but trust in the Lord. Sometimes you and I say, well, we've got it made. You know, we'll do this and we'll do that. And they were doing everything to protect themselves. They gathered the armor, fortifying the walls. They were gathering the water. We have to have water. They said, we'll make a reservoir between the two walls. They were doing everything humanly possible but trusting in God. And you know, you and I can work ourselves to our wit's end. And if there's no trust in God, it will all be in vain. We have to learn in the midst of all of our preparation to put God first and trust in Him first. Because all of our efforts can come to naught. And that's what they were doing. They said, oh, we're going to take care of it. You know, we've got a problem. And they do it was because of their sins. But we'll take care of it. You know, we'll, we'll plan on defending ourselves from the enemy. And their plans were all right. But their faith was not. And they didn't look to God. It says... But ye have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither hath respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. Look back into God's preparation for them long time ago. Someone said, well, the past is in the past. Yes, but if we'll look back once in a while and see what God has done, it'll be a great encouragement. It may be the past, but we're building upon the past. We always build upon the past. Our history of our nation is built upon the past, upon the shed blood of the, of the ones that established a free nation under God, by the way. And we ought to keep it that way, or at least get it back that way. I don't know about keep it. We may be too late to keep it that way. But it says in verse 12, And in that day did the Lord God of hosts call weeping and to mourning, call to weeping and to mourning, and to baldness, and to girding with sackcloth. Remember, girding with sackcloth and ashes was a sign of mourning. And the baldness, to shave one's head, was a sign of grief. So he says, this is a day of mourning, a day of sorrow. Sin brings sorrow, doesn't it? Rebellion brings sorrow. And as a nation and as a people, they were in that condition. In verse 13, And behold, joy and gladness, slaying of ox, slaying oxen and killing a sheep eating flesh and drinking wine, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. And it was revealed in mine ears by the Lord of hosts, Isaiah says, Surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till you die, saith the Lord God of hosts. The present celebrations that they had would be short-lived. In other words, they were, what did, look at all that was happening. Joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing uh, sheep and eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. They were looking to only the satisfaction of the, of the desires of the flesh. Never mind God, never mind what He thought about their uh, situation. But God, uh, God says through Isaiah in verse 14, look at it. And it was revealed in mine ears by the Lord of hosts. Surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till you die, saith the Lord God of hosts. You know, God looks down and He sees a people sometimes that are so rebellious, and the prophet comes with a message, and the Word of God comes with a message and says, You people, I know what you're going to do. You're going to just continue like you are till you die. There's no, not going to be any change because you've shown no indication that you're willing to change. 
Pretty sad, isn't it? Don't we see that in our community? Don't we see that in our nation? We see people hell-bent, pardon the expression, on doing what they want to do, regardless of what, what comes of it, and no sign of repentance. And they're going to do that till they die. There are just certain kinds of people that are so rebellious and so determined to continue in their way that nothing will stop them short of death. That's sad. God's Word tells us to turn. Turn to me. He tells us to repent of sin. He tells us to confess our sins. Let me see if I can turn over in Isaiah, this same prophet. Maybe I can find the message. Uh, Isaiah... Forty, well, 41 is good. 54. Let's see if I can turn it to page to uh, 54. Let's see what we find. In verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call, call ye upon Him while He is near. And then what does it say? Let the wicked forsake His way. See, there has to be a change. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord. And what will he do? And he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So Isaiah later on preaches the message of turning and repenting. Okay, back in our text now. Uh, verse 15 through uh, the rest of the chapter shows us the unfaithfulness of the leaders, and we'll see the, them in just a moment. But let me give you some more details of the uh, unbelief of the people that we've already kind of rehearsed. Some statements I have. While some parts of this description that we've talked about in this passage of Scripture seem to apply to the Assyrian invasion in Hezekiah's day, the primary reference is to the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem, and it happened in 586 B.C. And in Isaiah's day, Jerusalem was a joyous city, we've covered this, uh, as a people engaged in all kinds of celebrations. The popular philosophy was, and we just read it, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. In fact, Paul quotes that in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32. But the prophet did not participate in the parties. You know, there's a time when God's people, and especially preachers, have to be separated from such kinds of parties. For he saw a day coming when death and destruction would reign in the city of David. And the people went up to the housetops, but the prophet went down into one of the three valleys around Jerusalem, and there God gave him the vision. The vision uh, and the valleys sometimes go together. You know... If you see things in the light that God sees them, sometimes you have to get down into the valley to see the vision. Sometimes you have to go to the backside of the desert to be trained like Moses in solitude. Sometimes you have to get away from the masses and from the, from the hubbub of the crowd. Remember, John the Baptist came from the wilderness of Judea. And you remember his dress and his attire, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he became the forerunner of Christ. So sometimes we have to go down into the valleys because the visions and the enlightenment and the sight comes from being separate with God. Jesus went up into a high mountain apart to pray. 
So in this vision, he saw people dying, as we said, not from battle wounds, but from famine and disease. And he saw the nation's rulers fleeing in fear as the enemy approached. The people would do everything possible to prepare for a long siege, collecting armor, fortifying the walls, servicing the water supply, and building the reservoirs between the walls. But it was all frantic preparation and would not deliver them from the enemy. And the defenses of Judah were stripped away. And in their false confidence, they said, just as the Lord delivered Jerusalem from Assyria, He will deliver us from Babylon. But that was false confidence. You know, a lot of people have a false hope. They say, you know, God has put up with it this long. He's never going to do anything. There are people that have a false hope. The Bible says in in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, because sentence, judgment, against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men, one heart, the heart, singular, of the sons of men, plural, is fully set in them to do evil. And have you ever heard people say, well, you know, if, if this is displeasing to God, He can strike me dead. Don't ever say that because most of the things we do are displeasing to God. Most of it. We have to be walking in the straight and narrow way. The poem Brother Nichols read this evening, we have to be walking as God would have us to walk to have God's approval. Get in that secret place of the Most High. The Bible says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the a shadow of the Almighty. Instead of feasting, they should they did everything but trust the Lord. Instead of feasting, they should have been fasting and weeping and praying and putting on the sackcloth. And God had sent the nation many prophets to warn them, but the people would not listen. It was not only Isaiah. Amos had the same message. We have others of the minor prophets. Not minor in value, but minor as far as uh, classification in the Bible. There are certain prophets that are called the minor prophets that, that are major prophets in my sense of the word. But uh, we find that there are other prophets that warn them of the same things that Isaiah was warning them of, but they wouldn't listen. And you know, God's people, God's preachers, God's uh, uh, teachers, God's uh, witnesses today, whoever you may be, you go out and tell the truth about, uh, to people and many people will not listen. You tell the truth about salvation. You tell the truth about judgment, about sin. And it was too late. Finally, their sins could not be forgiven because their hearts were so hard. And the Bible, we already touched on it where it says, it'll never happen until you die. In other words, death would be the only thing that would end their situation. It says, you're going to keep on this way till you die. And God's word to Isaiah would be fulfilled. That it would be a people hard and would be... He, he prophesied of this in the 6th chapter. Let me read it for you in the 6th chapter, verses 9 through 13. Remember when Isaiah, when God said to Isaiah, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? <clears throat> in verse 8, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, Then said I, Here am I, send me. And then in verse 9, he said, Go and tell this people... Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. See, God's word to Isaiah would be fulfilled. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and be, and convert, and be healed. How would you like to be a preacher sent on a mission like Isaiah had? I'm telling you, God told him up front. He says, 
Isaiah, you're going to people whose hard hearts and will not listen to anything that you say. If by a chance of a miracle one of them hears and be converted, it will be healed. You know, if somebody would listen. And then Isaiah says, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitants and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate. He said, just keep on keeping on at his word and do it. Sometimes preachers today feel like that. We're so thankful for a few. We're so thankful for a congregation that believes the Word of God. But sometimes when you start reaching out, you find many times some of the same results that Isaiah found and some of the same hearts that Isaiah found. Hard-hearted, unconcerned about the things of God. And if you get out in society very far, you'll find that these things are true. Once in a while, you'll find one that God will touch and bring to the house of God to be saved and come into the church and start living a godly and Christian life. But that's a miracle of God's grace when that takes place because a lot of people are hard-hearted and they want to do their own thing and live in their own sin and their little pet sins they don't want to put away. And some of them are not so little. They try to think of little sins and big sins, but they they just will not turn to God. Well, you and I are living in a day and age when people are much like that. Sad to say. There's people all over Rio Dosa, Randy and I visit them, you visit them. Many of us have contacted them. And you'll find their attitude is, you know, I've got this problem and I'm just crying and weeping and, oh, it's just about to tear me up. Well, you know, trust God with it. Come to the house of God. We'll pray with you. We'll and try to do them good, and what happens? Maybe just a spark of response for a moment, and then right back to the same old path, living in sin, rebelling against God. Now, friend, I haven't got to the second part of this message yet, the unfaithfulness of the leaders, but let me just say this. It's up to you and I how we respond to God's Word. If we want to yield to it and follow God's Word, He, he says you're more than welcome. You're re- he's ready. He wants you to come. But if you want to continue on, that's rebellion against God. Continue on disregarding. And there are many people that do that very same thing. Then we come to the unfaithful leaders. Look in chapter 22. And we got down to verse 15. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Get thee into this treasure. And by the way, he was a steward. Even to Shebna which is over the house, and say, What hast thou here? And whom hast thou here? By the way, he was a steward or treasurer, a corrupt high government official, probably prime minister, second only to the king, but he would be judged. He was advancing his own cause. Does that sound like politics today? High government officials advancing their own cause. And here's what he was doing. You know, I can think of a lot of things to do to advance my own cause than what he was doing. He was just building a good sepulchre. I believe I'd build me some uh, house to live in or uh, buy me something new if I was going to advance my own cause. I wouldn't do it in the way he did. But he said, I want this big memorial to me when I'm gone. And what was he doing? It says that thou hast hewed, hewed thee out of us out a sepulchre here as as he that heweth him out a sepulchre on high, and that graveth an habitation for himself in a rock. He was advancing his own cause, 
and seeking to build an impressive memorial to himself when the nation needed rebuilding instead of promoting his own cause. And of course, regardless of what he's doing, he was selfish and promoting his own cause instead of promoting the welfare and the well-being of the nation. We need to promote the things of God and sacrifice for the things of God instead of for self. There's a lesson in that. And we need, certainly in the church, to do that for future generations. You and I can build a foundation for these young people and for the ones that will come years after we're gone. And if we'll promote that instead of, as some have promoted memorials to themselves and uh, are selfish in trying to promote their own cause and seek out wealth and Many of the senators and congressmen, and et cetera, et cetera, they either want to, to, to promote their own cause for their own political advantage in the future or for their own financial advantage at the present and the future. But we have very few that want to serve the nation just because they can do good and have the intelligence, have the, the ability to do it. And that's sad, isn't it? We have some men like Lincoln now, instead of serving all the, the hard liquor and the drinks they serve at your expense and mine, say, well, I'll get them some cool spring water. That's what he did. You read the history. What are you going to serve? President Abe, he says, well, we're going to draw them some good spring water, fill them a glass of water. But now they've got to have the highest price liquor and all the things that, that go with big partying and big uh, festivities at the expense of people that are working to try to pay the, the taxes. Well, I don't mean we shouldn't pay them. Jesus taught us we should. But I think the, the leaders ought to be more responsible for spending it, don't you? And I love our nation. I love, And I think we ought to pray for all of our leaders. But I'm just saying that when people get selfish... Uh, ambitions instead of the good of the people. That can happen in churches too. And we want to keep the good of the people before us. Always. Alright, let's go uh, and read this. In verse 17 he says, Behold, uh, the Lord will carry thee away with a mighty captivity and will, and will surely cover thee. He will surely violently Turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. There shalt thou die. In other words, this fellow wasn't going to do himself. Shebna was not going to do himself any good by his selfish ambitions. He, God says, There shalt thou die, and there uh, the chariots of thy glory shall be the shame of thy Lord's house. And I will drive thee from thy station, and from thy state shall he pull thee down. And then God says, I'm going to replace you with a godly I'm going to replace your position with a godly leader. In verse 20, this is a replacement. And by the way, this replacement is a type of Christ. A more prudent and godly leader, he says, I will give you. Look at this. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. And I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the house of Judah. What would he do? Build him a sepulchre and a memorial? No. He'd be a father. And he would be concerned about Jerusalem and the, 
and the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. Eliakim will be stable and reliable and honorable. He would have the key speaks of, of uh, power and authority. The man with the keys. And he goes in and he unlocks the doors. Jesus is said to be like that. Look in the book of Revelation chapter 3 in verse uh, 7 and 8. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. Who is it? Jesus. He that openeth and no man shutteth. You see? He has the power to take those keys and open doors and he can also lock them up and shut them. And shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. And he goes on. This is, Philadelphia was a church of brotherly love. Philadelphia means brotherly love. Missionary and evangelistic opportunities were open. And there were words of comfort given to them that they could come and be assured. And this scripture we're reading is what's quoted by John in, in the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos. And he's applying what is said of Eliakim back here in Isaiah 22 to the Lord Jesus Christ. We said he is a type of Christ. Let's read this quickly. Our time is about to get away. In verse uh, 22 and 3, it says, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. And by the way, see, this is a replacement for this uh, self-advancing leader that we read of in verse uh, 15, Shebna, which is over the house. And then in verse 16, where he was trying to advance his cause and make a memorial to himself, grave and habitation for himself in a rock. And in verse 22, we find that the nature of this Eliakim is spoken of and his characteristics. The key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulders, so he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open, and I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. Look at the reliability and, and uh, the assurance that you have here. And honor. A nail in a sure place. The stability. And he shall be for a glorious stone to his father's house. That's what he would be for. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring of and the issue, all the vessels of small quantity, from the vessel of cups, even to the vessel of flagons. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in a sure place be removed and be cut down and, and fall, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the Lord has spoken it. The unfaithful leaders, and we'll try to sum this up as we did the early section for you, had the leaders been faithful to the Lord and called the people to repentance, there might have been hope for them. But we find this leader was not faithful, especially beginning in verse 15. Too many of the leaders were like Shebna, thinking only of themselves. He was a, a treasurer or a steward, and he was second to King Hezekiah in authority. And you read that in chapters 36 and 37. But he used his authority and possibly the king's money to build himself this memorial, this monumental tomb, and to acquire chariots. And he was not a spiritual man. And God judged him by demoting him. You see, God can set up kings and bring them down, and leaders and rulers. 
And he judged him by demoting him. He became a secretary according to uh, Isaiah 36 verse 3. And he disgraced him and deported him and eventually was thrown like a ball. We read that into a far country of Syria where he died and could not have had an expensive funeral and be buried in his very elaborate tomb. You see, sometimes you prepare for things that will never happen. Someone says, I want this kind of memorial. Well, you'll be lucky if you get any. You'll be better off if you have none. And God chose a new man, Eliakim, and he would raise, God would raise him up and call him my servant. And instead of exploiting the people, he would be a father to them and use his key of authority for the good of the nation. If you have any authority, use it for good, not for self. And he would be uh, like a dependable peg hammered into the wall on which he could hang many burdens. But even a godly leader like Eliakim could not prevent the ultimate fall of Judah. For one day, the whole nation would fall. And we've already mentioned that Eliakim is a picture of Jesus Christ, the greatest servant of all. And we read in Revelation 3-7 where that picture is, is borne out, typical of Christ. Well, we thank you for your patience and your kind attention. We'll take up the next chapter in our next lesson.